0: There's frankly a cultural issue within medicine. I speak to GPs and medical graduates about their experience of being in a hospital and expressing to a consultant who might be supervising them, expressing an ambition to be a GP and being told, why would you want to do that? Like You could be an anaesthetist, you're smart enough to be a cardiac surgeon. You've got to get away from this idea that general practice, the backbone of our healthcare system is somehow a B grade.
1: welcome to the show. You are listening to Australian Politics. I'm Catherine Murphy, the host, obviously. With me delightfully uh, this week is Mark Butler, the Health Minister. Now, if you've been following the news over the last couple of weeks, you will know exactly why Mark is in the podcave uh, With me for this weekend's episode, there's been a new report released canvassing some, well, I think you'd call them high level, wouldn't you? high-level thoughts, Mm. Mark's nodding, Um, about how uh, we strengthen the Medicare system. And I want to work through a number of them in this conversation. I sort of want to start at a more helicopter level, if we can. I think for a lot of Australians who don't follow the ins and outs of health policy closely, there'll be this sort of weird cognitive dissonance because during the pandemic... Uh, obviously, governments spent a load of money basically shoring up health systems, hospitals, all of that sort of stuff, kind of eye-popping amounts of money. Um, But yet the systems, not only only here, but all around the world, have got the staggers on the other side of the pandemic, right? So, uh, I read a really interesting piece in The Economist recently about this, about the health systems uh, around the world. And basically, I think they're, you know, pissy as The Economist generally is. It was something like they're doing less with more, <laughs> There was some line Spot like on. that, right? So anyway, I just think, let's start there, right? So you, the, the Strengthening Medicare Task Force report says, since the pandemic began, more people are presenting at emergency departments or delaying their care. Uh, practices are finding it hard to recruit GPs and other health workers and bulk billing rates are falling. So let's open with a simple question. Why?
0: Why? Well, not, not a good story, but you're right to point out that uh, every developed economy, um, in, no matter sort of what the nature of their system, whether it's largely a large, a fully public system like the UK through the NHS or a more privatised system like America has or a hybrid system like Australia, is under unprecedented pressure and they're all... The staggers is one description. They're all under enormous pressure, and and um, for uh, for people really interested in that sort of comparison, I do I do encourage you to go to the Economist piece over the last couple of weeks. Um, they point out it's hard to find comparative data across the world mm-hmm. for health system performance, but they've managed to dig into some indicators and right across the world, whether it's emergency department presentations, waiting times for. To be seen in ED waiting times for elective surgery or non-urgent surgery, and particularly the operation of primary care systems. Everyone's suffering, mm. and I think across the world, it's or um, well, particularly the developed world, um, these pressures were building before the pandemic. Mm. We've all got an ageing population. We've all got a population which um, has much more chronic disease, some of it complex. We all have populations that are, for a variety of reasons that we don't have time to go deeply Mm. into, are experiencing more mental health issues. Mm. All of this is very hard to manage and, and support as a health system, particularly when your health system is largely set up, as ours is, for more... Short-term acute episodes of illness, mm. which is essentially what the Medicare system in Australia was built around. So you've got that, that sort of general building, inexorable build of pressure on all health systems. Then in 2020, you have a once-in-a-century mm. event that just supersizes that that challenge, places enormous pressure on healthcare systems. And as you pointed out, um, as we recognised in the task force defers a whole lot of care and support for those those very important chronic illnesses. We know, for example, that there have been tens of thousands fewer breast screens. Yeah. Um, we know that many, many people who should have been receiving ongoing pretty intensive care for their chronic illness, weren't able to, or weren't, you know, even outside the lockdown states, didn't feel confident to leave their house and go and visit general practitioners and their nurses. So there's a whole lot of deferred care built mm. up into the system, which means that people are presenting with greater acuity. Yep. In cancer, we're going to see that <clears throat> there's going to be a long tail of that for for some time, the size of which we don't really know yet. So building pressures in the system, which are largely a reflection of demographics in yep. the population, older age, um, increasing weight and some of those other risk factors, supersized by the pandemic and in australia then we also have a decade largely of frozen medicare rebates mm. so so huge financial pressure that was building 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 yep. and seems to have got to a position over the last year or two combined with a big increase in inflation to have pushed a number of primary care and gp practices over the edge to the point where they've just taken a very painful decision for them and certainly for their patients to stop bulk billing in the way in which they had in the past.
1: Yeah. So basically, sort of the thrust of the report is we've got to change the way we deliver primary care, right? That's sort of the broad thrust.
0: Not a new revelation either. I mean, I think many commentators make this point. This is not new.
1: No, sure. But it's, but it's, uh, but, you know. It's just not uh, been landed. Well, that's, well, exactly. I mean, we've spent a lot of time talking about it. Now something may actually happen, which is really interesting. Now, Gene GPs will tell you that basically there's a fundamental problem in the system in terms of the incentives in the system. GPs will tell you that anything that they do that adds quality during a consultation costs them or their practice's income, right? The whole system is geared basically to throughput. Just push people through fast in seven-minute consultations, not having relationships necessarily with patients, right? Every value add that they do, double the size of the appointment, suggest an extra scan, take the time to sit and talk to someone about how their well-being is, all of that costs them money. So that seems to me to be a fundamental problem in the system. What can you do to fix that?
0: You're absolutely right. Um, uh, And I think it's not just doctors groups, it's patient groups, really importantly. No, they're not getting the care, the type of care that that they need because the system's just not underpinning it. Um, Nurses groups, a range of others who are important players in the system. Some of the things we could do are relatively straightforward. So one of the recommendations of the task force is we look at um, a longer consult item. Yeah. So there is not a consult item for more than 60 minutes, for example. Um, so after the 41st minute, uh, a doctor is with, a GP is with a patient who might have very complex comorbidities, mental health and physical health conditions. Uh, family violence advocates have talked to us about the time. It often takes a GP mm-hmm. to sit down with, with victims and step through a range of issues, many of them health, some not. After the 41st minute, the doctor's then losing money. Yeah. There's, a, there's a very fast decay rate. So, so one of the things doctors groups have been calling for for a while and is reflected in the task force is we have a what you call a level E consult. So you have a an additional consult item in the MBS uh, for sixty minute plus consults, and, and that would provide extra incentive and, and reward for GPs who do this long who do this long time work. Uh, interestingly, it's it's pretty clear that that's predominantly female GPs. Mm-hmm. So there's actually a driver of a further gender pay gap in the system that the the female GPs tend to do more of this work. That might be an mm-hmm. overgeneralisation, but mm-hmm. every bit of evidence suggests that. So that's one sort of relatively straightforward thing the task force has suggested we could do. More broadly than that, though, the system really is set up for procedures. So, you know, in the old days, you'd, you'd do yourself an injury, you'd get an infection, you'd go to a doctor, there'd be a procedure, and they'd get a rebate for it. Mm. I mean, that, that's really the, 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 the emphasis of the system, rather than on the consultations, that underpin really good chronic care. Mm. And so how do how do we shift the balance to that sort of care, which is good chronic disease care, yeah. and also reflect it's not all GPs. Like a whole lot of the really important support and care is going to be delivered by other health professionals, yeah, particularly yeah. nurses, yeah. but also allied health professionals. And that is not reflected well in the MBS.
1: Yeah, and I'll get to that in a minute because that's actually really interesting, that whole multidisciplinary type model. Um, One of the intriguing things to me reading the task force report was this idea that somehow we've got to be able to provide incentives for medical practitioners to have long-term relationships with patients. I mean, you know, look, I don't know whether you've got a long-term relationship with your general practice. I mean, I feel very fortunate to have that. But I think a lot of people in the community don't. And you can see the value that would add in terms of the model you're talking about, which is people, you know, with with chronic conditions, comorbidities, all this sort of stuff, so that, you know, Mm -hmm. that it's not kind of ground zero every time the patient walks in the door. But for the life of me, I can't think how you create incentives allowing for those relationships. So what are you thinking in that space?
0: Well, that that was a big part of our discussion as a task force. And again, not a new idea. It was an idea that's been reflected in advice to governments for some years now. So essentially the doctors groups want to set up a system of it's very sort of technocratic, mm. but voluntary patient enrolment, so that so it's it's essentially a system that that effectively sort of formalises the relationship between a patient and a particular general practice. Yeah. Question then is what flows from that. Mm-hmm. You know, what's the value proposition? What what's the value for the patient in that? I mean, obviously GPs then have a sense of security about their book. Um, they know they've got a book of a particular size. But what do patients get out of it? And that's the sort of thing we're now thinking through as we consider the advice uh, of, of the task force. Um, that this will be of particular value to some groups in the community more than others. Mm-hmm. So so older Australians will will particularly value that. Yep. They go to GPs, obviously more. There's been a particular focus on the first 2,000 days of life and this yes. aligns very well with the early years strategy yeah. that, that Minister Amanda Rishworth is leading. So we're, we're looking at that very closely as well. We know the value of good health care and, and other supports to parents and children in their first five years of life. So how do we strengthen that relationship and give people a sense at a time when they just don't have that connection that was a real feature of traditional general practice in Australia. They don't have always that same connection you Mm. feel fortunate enough to have. Mm. I have with my local GP. I've been going to for some years as well. How do we strengthen that, particularly for patients most at need? Um, It's a big systemic change. Um, It's not going to happen overnight. It's one I'm very inclined to to take up. I I really see the value. Quite what then attaches to that? What's the incentive for people to do that, for doctors to go out and invite that sort of formalisation of the relationship? And for patients to take up that invitation, I think that's going to be the critical answer.
1: Mm. So let's just think about multidisciplinary care for a minute. Uh, I want to get to money next, but let's think about multidisciplinary care. And what we mean by that is that Mark alluded to it a minute ago that it's not just GPs, obviously, it's practice nurses and allied health peeps, physios as and a team.
0: Yes. Right. Not a hub and spoke. Yeah. Um, you don't have individual relationships with a nurse and then with a GP and your relationship is with a team who yeah. genuinely work as a team. Yeah. They all know what each other is doing.
1: I'm just sort of intrigued because I mean obviously it makes huge intuitive sense that that thought, right? You 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 hear that and you think, well yeah, of course, duh. But what is the evidence? Is there an evidence base that we can draw on? I'm just sort of intrigued because obviously, you know, in some of the um, mental health service delivery models, multidisciplinary care was a big innovation. Mm -hmm. And yet, with due respect to mental health services who deliver through that model, um, you know, we don't, I mean, it's not like the kind of epidemic of mental illness has suddenly been cured, right? In fact, it's, Intensifying rather than not. So, what evidence are you drawing on in terms of setting up, uh, you know, policy that sort of implements that sort of a model?
0: I don't think it's seriously contested, really, anymore that that for complex chronic disease you need a team working with you, each of each member of which will bring a particular skill. So if you take diabetes, um, someone with quite serious type 2 diabetes, um, their best care will be from a team led by a GP, but will have a diabetes educator, an allied health professional working there, maybe an exercise physiologist as well. They may need some support from a podiatrist, given what happens to extremities with diabetes, all of which will often be coordinated by a good practice nurse. That's not what the Medicare schedule is yeah. well set up to do, it's set up to deliver care from a GP and there might be the ability to refer off to an allied health professional separately who probably will be working somewhere else. But how do you bring those people all together as a team, um, uh, all operating to the full extent of their skills and training? Because there are lots of sort of pretty artificial restrictions on what we call the scope of practice, what people can legally do that often bears very little relationship to the extent of their formal skills and Mm -hmm. training. Mm -hmm. How do we free that stuff up? You know, a lot of it's subject to long-standing turf wars in the Australian medical system, uh, a lot of regulation at state level... And it's just not delivering that sort of wraparound care that people with complex chronic disease need. And just to finish your question on the evidence base, the Grattan Institute did a report recently saying that there have been more pilots in this area than Qantas has. And that's <laughs> you know, a bit of an exaggeration. <laughs> well,
1: maybe, yeah, well, particularly these days, perhaps, yes. Yeah, anyway, but, there, mm. but,
0: but there have been a lot of pilots. I mean, we, when we were last in government, did a diabetes care pilot here that, that I think when it was evaluated showed very clearly, as, as these things have right around the world, The value to patients of doing it. Mm -hmm. What's been difficult is landing it in a system, uh, a system that's just not well set up to do it.
1: Well, let me just ask the before we get to money, I mean, well, that, you know, what you've just said begs the obvious question. You've referred to turf wars and that's correct. Obviously, uh, people are fiercely protective of their professional boundaries. The GPs are going to go apeshit if you basically say, Actually, a pharmacist can turn over a routine script, or the practice nurse can do something that would normally require a full consult. I mean, they are going to go nuts. Well, I mean, that's very colourful language, Catherine. Mm. But uh, mm.
0: every well, look, do every, you disagree? Every, well, every stakeholder has their red lines. I mean, I think. But I think what was really refreshing about the task force discussions on this, which had doctors' groups and nurses' groups and allied health groups. Uh, many of whom have had furious disagreements in the past about mm-hmm. about this sort of this sort of question. I think recognise things have got to change. Um, the patient reps on the on the um, on the task force made that very clear. Yeah, and and I think intuitively everyone understands that. So there will be red lines for doctors' groups, for example, around you know they have very strong views about pharmacy prescribing, mm. uh, which was not actually a. Matter of discussion in no, the task no, force. No, the pharmacy but, groups weren't there, but, but it is a live debate have, at state yeah, level. Exactly. Um, so, uh, so, so there will be red lines. But the, the broader question, you know, when I talk to GPs and a lot of the GPs who are on this task force, they want to be able to work as as a team. They want to be able to be confident that their practice nurse is able to work to the extent of their skills and training. What they don't want is to lose money because of it. Yeah. And and the the system is set up that if you've got a limited space in your general practice, allocating a room to a practice nurse right now doesn't make financial sense. Mm -hmm. What you should do is get another GP in and get a whole lot of throughput happening. That's what will bring a financial return to your practice. So how do we change the financial incentives to not only free up some of those artificial restrictions on people's scope of practice, but also reward good care?
1: That leads us though to money, because when we talk about incentivizing things, we're talking about Money. We're talking about rebates and rewarding, you know, the models of care we want to see. Now, obviously, uh, the Labor Party has, or the government uh, has, pointed to seven hundred and fifty million. That was before the election, wasn't it? Mm -hmm. That yeah, right. So here's here's our money for strengthening Medicare. I mean, there's a limited pot of money. It's not. There's not a money tree here. So, a couple of questions: Is seven hundred and fifty the pot, or could that be larger in the May budget?
0: Well, we'll. we'll We'll see what comes out of the May budget. That, mm, that's that's the commitment we but... made before the election, and and that money was put aside in the October budget in the contingency reserve on the basis that we would decide how to spend that money, guided by advice from the task force. But you know we will be we will be searching for every dollar we can put into a stronger Medicare system. I've been pretty brutally clear, I hope, that we're not going to put additional money into existing systems that aren't working.
1: Yeah, you've got to get, that well, but, but, but that's the quid pro quo I'm getting yeah. to, right? If you can get to a point where you feel like you can implement some systemic change that delivers better health outcomes, does the pot of money increase? Because, I mean, no health minister I've ever known in my life <laughs> would, would say, oh no, actually, I'm not. I'm not going to go to ERC and ask for more money if I think that there's, you know, there's a benefit actually in getting the more money. So,
0: of, of course, and and you know, my job is to deliver the best possible healthcare system to Australians. But, but I also know from experience as a health minister in the previous government mm. for a number of years, that, you know, hard work means that you can spend existing money better.
1: Oh, of course. Um, yeah, and it's not all you're right to say, which is what you're going to say next. It's not all about money and it's not. I mean, Well,
0: it is about money, but it's not necessarily it it about isn't. always just mm. finding new money. Yes, it's also about I mean. spending yeah. existing health budgets better yeah. in a way that reflect the needs of the population in 2023 rather than a system that was really designed around a different demographic profile. Mm-hmm. So we're going through that that process right now. I think, you know, of course, health groups and patient groups want more money in the health budget. Um, they always do. And that's completely understandable. They want to see a system that, that serves the needs of, mm-hmm. of, their, of patients very well. They also recognise, though, that things are tight. Um, and that we should be able to find ways in the Medicare budget and the health budget more broadly that support patients, existing patients who are already going into general practices in a, in a way that reflects their needs.
1: I think we got to, yes, being the answer, but in the event that you feel as though you can actually usher in systemic change, maybe the pot grows. The pot for new models of care
0: um, will be as big as I can make it. Yes. Um, but that doesn't mean it's all new money.
1: Uh, no no in, no, in no. Many ways no 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 I've got be your point. spending
0: existing funds in Medicare better yeah I mean they, they, these patients are already coming through the patients we're particularly focused on are already coming through general practices are the systems that they that, that are currently funded by Medicare serving their needs in the best way yes yes yeah
1: okay um in the event because obviously why are we talking about an overhaul of primary care well we're talking about it because you know as you've outlined we want a care model that is fit for the population needs at this point in time, right? So there's obviously, that's a social good, right? <laughs> we want better primary care because we like healthy people, because we're a developed country. But also the reason why we have this uh, sort of, call it a perennial conversation around better primary care is the sort of rationale is better primary care means less hospital admissions, mm-hmm. right? So again, just sticking with the money for, for the minute, uh, although I mean, obviously it's we're talking about reform, so it's more the money. But in the event you can land a better primary healthcare system that strengthens Medicare, does that then open a, a conversation with the states in terms of shares of hospital funding because one leads That's to the other, good. right?
0: Well, I mean better primary care system doesn't just mean a less stressed hospital system, it mm. also means better public health. Yes, and that's how you stay healthy is with a good relationship with your primary care team, particularly your your GP. So there are a range of social goods out of it, I think most importantly, a, a healthier population because mm. what we're finding now is that people who are finding it harder than ever to see a GP or finding it more expensive, so so trying to explore cheaper options, are becoming unhealthier. Yeah. And that's that's not just bad for the hospital system, that's bad for society much more broadly and for the economy and productivity. So this has got to be a really important focus. I, I think what you've seen, particularly in the last couple of weeks, leading into last week's national cabinet, is a level of engagement by the states, particularly and particularly premiers Mm. and chief ministers in Medicare or primary care policy that I've never seen before. Yeah. You know, I've been in this portfolio area now on and off for a decade and a half. Yeah. I've never seen it.
1: And um, so what's why now? Well,
0: why? B- well, because I think, as you point out, they understand that a failing general practice yeah. system, okay frankly, a failing anywhere in the health system, tends to end up at the emergency department. Mm. The emergency department is really the lightning rod for every failing in healthcare elsewhere in the community, yeah. whether that's the mental health support system, the aged care system or the primary care system. And they are very conscious of what's happening right now and, frankly, they might not use this word. I've used it. They're sort of terrified by the the current trends. Mm. If we think it's hard to see a GP now, when you look at the pipeline of new GPs, five to ten years down the track, if we don't turn that around, our primary care system will be in enormous strife. And that will place even more pressure on the hospital system than some of those structural challenges, an older population, more complex chronic disease are already placing on them.
1: Mm. It's it's such a sort of um, mind-focusing point, right? If we don't actually fix this trend now, we're it only gets worse. The story only gets worse from here. But then again, I sort of I guess in this in the circular way I think, right, it's kind of like we need more GPs. So we need to sort of provide incentives for people to want to be GPs as opposed to, you know, wonderful specialists. Because in a way, specialists have the much easier jobs, right? They don't actually have to be across all the spectrum of health conditions. So GPs are paid less than specialists, have to be across more, uh, you know, worry endlessly about medico-legal issues. There's a big question there about how... Yeah, you know, it's, it's sort of like the debate we have periodically about teachers, right? Mm-hmm. Sort of like how do we actually encourage the best medically trained people to actually want to go into general practice, as opposed to specialists, where they're more remunerated and have happier happier lives. Um, I mean, this is complex. Whew, it's a big, it's a big, it's a big, it's a big bullet to bite.
0: It is, it is, and and at the risk of boring your listeners with a statistic. This is a, I think, a really. Stark one. It was not too long ago that fifty percent, so half of all medical graduates went into general practice. Yeah. Now it's less than fourteen percent. Yeah. So no, it's know, a pro- about, Like instead of one in two, it's now one in seven.
1: Yeah. No, and it's...
0: that is that is just not a sustainable pipeline to keep a good primary care system operating. Yeah, so... Why are that? Why are they not going yeah. into general practice? Well, well, you're right. General practice is hard work. Mm-hmm. Like it managing um, overwhelming demand for. Good mental health support, complex chronic disease, lots of comorbidities. That's hard work. Mm. Um, and if you're managing a general practice as well, you know, a relatively sort of small business, um, that is an additional pressure on your time. Yeah. Now, look, I speak to lots of GPs, lots of medical students. They want to be general practitioners because there's huge reward in it. Not talking about money particularly, but huge reward. Uh, from the connection to community that mm. they feel they mm. get, the mm. idea that you have this sort of sometimes lifelong relationship um, with a family that, from from when they have a little baby to the the baby growing right through childhood and adolescence mm. and and dealing with the health challenges that you see from moving from young adulthood into middle age. I mean, this is something that GPs talk to me all the time about. Mm. There is a little bit more control over your work-life balance. I mean, you work long hours, but, you know, being a hospital doctor yeah. you know means you work shift work yeah. and all of those sorts of things yeah. there's no question there's there's salary difference mm. and you know we need to think about some of those issues there are other conditions of employment um, that particularly public hospital employees enjoy that you don't get particularly while you're training. So we're working with states on ways to to change that. The, The Prime Minister and I were down only the week before last, announcing a scheme with Tasmania that would see GP registrars, so that's trainee GPs who've done their six years of university and are doing their specialist training as GPs employed by the public hospital system. So Mm -hmm. they get continuity of employment. They get better wages. Um, These people are often in their late 20s, early 30s, so it's often a time they're thinking about having a family themselves. Instead of having five or six employers in five years, they have one, so Mm -hmm. they have that stability. So there's some of those things we can look at as well. Frankly, though, and this is, you know, there's frankly a cultural issue within medicine. Yeah. I speak to GPs and medical graduates all the time uh, about their experience of being in a hospital and expressing to a consultant who might be supervising them, expressing an ambition to be a GP Mm. and being told, why would you want to do that? Like, You could be an anaesthetist. You're smart enough to be a cardiac surgeon. Why, Why do you want to be a GP? So we've got to get away from this idea that, general practice, the backbone of our healthcare system is somehow a a, a B grade. Mm, That's your order, um, yeah. uh, So it's really complex, Mm. I I think. And, and, um, you know, the, the premiers and chief ministers have raised in Cabinet the need for there to be a focused strategy on building the general practice workforce, making it more attractive for, for medical graduates to go mm-hmm. into.
1: Mm-hmm. A couple of questions just about COVID quickly because obviously um, I'm sure you're fully aware that there are a lot of people in the community still very anxious about catching COVID and think that basically governments have gone in Australia from lock everything down to let a rip uh, all around the place. And obviously people are still dying from COVID. In a press conference you've done this week, you indicated that we might be past the peak of the latest uh, round of infections, but people still dying. But yet all the mandates are gone. No one's saying wear masks. no No one's intervening anymore, which I know makes a lot of people anxious. So have you dropped the ball?
0: No, I don't, I don't think we have dropped the ball. I mean, the decisions that were taken over the course of a period of time by all governments to move out of the emergency phase of the pandemic last year, um, to put in place a transition strategy um, to sort of really unwind some of those community-wide, pretty serious public health orders, density limits, border closures, a range of them, were done over a period of time. And we've published a COVID strategy for 2023 that reflects, I think, a, a balance between lifting a lot of those community-wide public health orders, but still a very strong focus on protecting the vulnerable. Mm. Um, it's, so, it's, so, so it, go on. Sorry, no, no, go on. So I don't, I don't accept the idea that we've lifted all protections. I mean, if you take aged care, for example, we really haven't changed our Supports in the aged care sector at all over the course of the last 12 months. Um, you know, you still need to wear a mask to go in, certainly during waves. Mm. Um, you need, need to be tested to go in, to, uh, whether you're a worker or a visitor. We still have. Lots of support in there for PPE, protective equipment for staff, particularly when there's a COVID outbreak. We've actually got much better at deploying antiviral treatments and very quick testing for people in aged care with symptoms to make sure they have antivirals in them as quickly as possible. I was asked at that press conference what else we might do, mm. given you know more than 800 people died in aged care over the course of the last... Wave the wave that is starting to come to an end yep. now, the summer wave, a yep. uh, terrible tragedy, a uh, terrible tragedy. What else could we do to, to bring that death rate down? We're mm. not going to bring it down to zero. Mm. Frankly, even if we locked down aged care facilities again so that residents were not able to see their loved ones and vice versa, we know what the mental health and, frankly, the physical health impacts of that were, uh, that isolation from your loved ones, often in the final weeks or months of your life, which is the position of many aged care residents. Mm. Short of that, we are now engaging with the aged care sector, with the with the chief health officers to learn what else could we do in the inevitable next wave of COVID, which will be sometime this year, yeah. to bring that down. We are not going to bring it down to zero, even if we lock them down. Uh, and I'm not inclined to do that, given every everything I've been told, all of the feedback from the sector and from families about The impacts of that. Mm. Even if we did that though, we're not going to bring that death rate down to zero. We've got to lift vaccination rates. We've got to learn the lessons about better deployment of some of these really effective antiviral treatments. Uh, I've said today, I'm asking for advice from the chief medical officer about the lessons we learned over the course of the last wave. We Mm. should do that. Mm. This is still a learning exercise, Mm. this pandemic. As the virus changes, as the vaccines change, as our treatments change, and as we learn about good public health response.
1: The last, um, obviously I mentioned that a lot of people very agitated that not enough is happening, but there's also a lot of other people (laughs) very agitated that too much happened. Uh, I'm just interested in a reflection from you, if you feel like you can share one with the listeners, that obviously you are a health minister in the middle of those competing polarities in the Australian community. And I think we saw them during COVID and it's picked the country up and put it down in a In another place, like in in a way that's now a fault line in the country between people who think nothing should have happened and people who can't process not enough happening. Mm. So how does that weigh on you as a decision maker?
0: The main thing that weighs on me is the, the responsibility I have, to the extent I have influence in these things, to get the decisions right. Uh, yes, you want to bring the community along with you, because we know in public health uh, that you can't just make top-down decisions. Sometimes they're necessary, particularly in an emergency, but for a sustainable public health response, the community needs to be behind you. Mm. That, 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 I think, is just a reflection of reality. Like many things these days, there are strong views at the end of at each end of the spectrum about what we as governments and we as a community should do. Mm. Um, it's not the only area of policy where that exists. <laughs> no, no, uh, no, 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 I can I, think of some others. I've been involved in some others as well. I can think of some
1: others. But, but I'm, I'm
0: pretty confident we do research about this stuff as well as general feedback. I'm pretty confident the vast bulk of the community think we've got this balance about right. And do you now, think- it doesn't mean they're not going to be critical. The vast bulk won't be critical. Come on, you've got to do a bit better on vaccination, information campaigns and whatever else. Um, but I think broadly speaking, the balance that National Cabinet worked through over the last 12 months or so, I think has broad support of the community. It doesn't mm. mean there's not strong views on either side, that either we should really just free everything up and we're far too heavy-handed, or or on the other hand we should have stronger restrictions in place now mm. uh, but i think we've got the broad community behind the balance that's been struck by national cabinet and i think as a matter of substance i think this is the right balance now you know we're going to learn from listen to the lessons of the last wave and if we need to make changes we will, I'm confident, um, make those changes. Mm.
1: Thank you for making the time to have this conversation. I appreciate it and I know the listeners do as well. Uh, Obviously, this process of uh, strengthening Medicare is going to play out between now and the budget, so we'll keep in touch uh, so that we can keep the listeners up to date with where all of that is up to. I guess in terms of just reflecting briefly on the pandemic question that we ended with, I wonder if we'll ever get past where we are now. Who knows? It's imponderable. Well, I
0: think it's imponderable. I I think, uh, you know, we're into the fourth year now, and I think at the beginning or the early stages of this pandemic, not many would have predicted that we'd still be pretty Mm. deep in it. We're in a different phase, but we're still pretty deep Mm. in it. Mm. Uh, The advice I received this morning is probably three or four million Australians were infected over the summer wave between late October and and now. It's a lot of people. Yeah, more than 2,600 people tragically lost their lives. So uh, we're in a different phase, but this thing's far from over. Mm. Uh, We don't know what the rest of the year is going to look like. No, I mean, and, look, and, authorities around the world right now are debating, do we move to a 12-monthly seasonal vaccine for COVID? Uh, and as they debate it, they all come to the same conclusion that we've come to and our advisors have come to, which is we're not in the position yet. This thing hasn't stabilised to the point where you can assume the sort of rhythm, for example, we have in flu season mm, of 12-monthly vaccinations. Yeah. So I'm confident we'll get beyond it at some point, but we're not there yet. Yeah,
1: exactly. Anyway, Mark Butler, thank you for your time. Thanks to Alison Chan, who's produced this episode. Thank you to you guys for listening. We will be back with you next week.
0: (laughs) Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news ad free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free. Or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without
1: the ads. A third of students are less than happy about their university choice, new research by EY has revealed. The findings suggest that a digital rethink is essential to meet the expectations of students and staff. Universities can address this by putting the needs of the people they serve at the heart of their digital strategies. Learn more about the future of human-centered higher education at theguardian.com forward slash transforming higher education. This message was paid for by EY.